Hi, and welcome to Class 22. Spring break is over, and we're ready to start The Lord of the Rings today. One note before we get going. During this whole course, I feel like I am plunging along through Tolkien's works at breakneck speed, and I never get a chance to talk about half the things that I would like to. This is especially true of The Lord of the Rings, or at least that's how I always feel about it. A little while down the road, I plan to do an in-depth lecture series on The Lord of the Rings, like the one I'm doing on The Hobbit now. So if you would like more discussion than I have time to do in class here, you'll get it, though it may be a little bit delayed. Anyway, on to the Fellowship of the Ring. Anyway, I'm not even kidding. <laughs> the Numenorians were freaking tall. Like, the Numenorian basketball team was amazing. But anyway. Fellowship of the Ring. So, uh, I, I hope that you uh, read the prefatory material, uh, as I invited you to do in addition to chapter 1 and 2. Um, I want to draw your attention to a couple things that he says in the foreword to the second edition, um, which is actually kind of a famous little document, because um, notice it's the foreword to the second edition. This is after the Lord of the Rings has been out for a while and has already become pretty famous, and therefore Tolkien has been both fielding directly and reading indirectly lots of things that people are speculating about it and saying about it, and he's responding to many of those things in this foreword. Uh, very centrally, you'll see him responding to uh, the, the theory which emerged almost immediately and remained very popular for a long time, that the Lord of the Rings was an allegory for World War II. Um, that's a, an idea which never seems wholly to die, uh, but which Tolkien tried his best to kill uh, in, this, in this little preface. But the things that I wanted to point out... Uh, Look on page the, the first page, Roman numeral 13. Look at the way he describes the writing of the story. would help if I could find the passage, actually. Listen to the end of the second paragraph. Even closer to the beginning of it, he says, But the story was drawn irresistibly towards the older world and became an account, as it were, of its end and passing away before its beginning and middle had been told. The process had begun in the writing of The Hobbit in which there were already some references to the older matter, Elrond, Gondolin, the High Elves, and the Orcs, as well as glimpses that had arisen unbidden of things higher or deeper or darker than its surface, Durin, Moria, Gandalf, the Necromancer, the Ring. The discovery of the significance of these glimpses and of their relation to the ancient histories revealed the Third Age and its culmination in the War of the Ring. What does this sound like? Where have we heard something like this before? We find Nagel. Yeah, it sounds exactly like the description of Nigel's painting. Um, the way that it sounds like it's just something that's happening to Nigel like the painting is growing of itself. In fact, he even uses a phrase which is almost identical to a phrase from Leaf by Niggle, uh, where he talks about the story throwing out unexpected branches. Um, he talks about... Notice his use of the word discovery, and of course, uh, the word glimpse, as he uses it there, should certainly also be making us think of Leaf by Niggle, but um, the discovery of the significance of these glimpses and of their relation to the ancient histories, revealed the Third Age and its culmination in the War of the Ring. Um, he's not saying, once I figured this out, or once I finally was able to flesh this out, or once I, made, once I established these connections, 
he describes discovering the significance of these things. These things had arisen unbidden. That is, Durin, Moria, the necromancer, the ring. When he wrote those things in The Hobbit, he didn't have any idea what they meant or what their significance was. The necromancer, as we saw throughout The Hobbit, is this very shadowy, distant figure of evil. Uh, which kind of looms behind the story, never takes part in the story, never becomes actually relevant, but is clearly uh, significant. And he says, I, you know, I have no idea. Tolkien often talks this way, especially in his letters, about, about the story. There's the famous letter, um, which is often quoted, uh, about him coming to uh, bringing the hobbits to the inn at Bree. Uh, and then, you know, there's this, this guy named Strider sitting in the corner, and he had and, and Tolkien's like, I have no, I had no idea who he was, and uh, you know, the, he he often talks like he's meeting his own characters uh, for the first time, and and not really in control of the story at all. Of course, there's a cause and effect thing here, right? That is, we can't just say that he is here, arti- you know, sort of putting into practice or, or explaining things in terms of the theory that he has already articulated in the works that we've already read. Of course many of the theories that he articulated in the works that we already read come from the kind of experience that he has here. Um, so the two of them are more, uh, are more closely interlinked than the sequence in which we've read things this semester might perhaps lead us to, to, to understand them. Um, but we can see his relationship to his stories in this way. And I just, it's, it's an important thing to keep in mind. Remember, this is, this is a fundamental part of his own theory of what storytelling means and of what storytelling is. And he clearly is thinking of his own story in these terms, too. Um, one brief note. I've, I talked about this a little bit before when we talked about allegory uh, way back when in Tolkien's resistance to allegory. This uh, passage in the foreword where he talks about it is the most famous and explicit place where he addresses allegory, saying that, uh, that, that he has cordially disliked allegory ever since he grew old and wary enough to detect its presence, um, and drawing the <coughs> distinction between allegory and applicability. He says in a passage which is sometimes disastrously misquoted um, that the story has, he says, as for any inner meaning or message, uh, the story has in the intention of its author none. Um, this doesn't mean the story isn't about anything and that it's not saying anything and that there's no point in reading it or thinking about it. Um, of course, what he means by this is that it has no, as he goes on immediately to clarify, no topical or allegorical significance. That is, he's not writing a book about World War II, for instance. Um, And he emphasizes that difference between applicability and allegory. It has substance to it. And the story can be applied in various ways. People can apply it to certain circumstances. He often did this himself in his own letters, for instance. Um, When he's writing letters, for instance, uh, to his son Christopher, while Christopher was in South Africa with with RAF, the Royal Air Force, during World War II, um, he often compares, he will speak in terms of orcs and hobbits when talking about the war, and he is not, by the way, ever just characterizing Germans as orcs and, 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 uh, and the English as, as, as hobbits during that time. In fact, one of the things that he openly laments is that one of the difficulties with this war is that there are orcs on both sides. Um, but, um, and he was very uncomfortable with the Royal Air Force, period, uh, that is the idea of, of 
mechanized flying warfare, um, he was deeply uncomfortable with that um, and thought, thought, thought it was a really bad thing. So, um, so it's not simple. But again, he is, he is very frequently applying some of the things from his story to his son's situation, to, uh, to the country's situation. But he emphasizes its applicability, not allegory. And the difference, as he points out, is that applicability lies in the freedom of the reader while allegory lies in the purposed domination of the author. That is, there is a particular message you are trying to convey, and the story is a code for that message, and the reader has to decode that, and if they don't decode it right, then they're getting it wrong and they're missing the point. That there is a particular thing. Uh, Ultimately, allegory is a subset of preaching. There's a particular message you're trying to convey, and and, and, and that's, that's the point of your story. And Tolkien didn't like that in general, didn't do that in general, not because he didn't like preaching so much, though you may remember his comments about fairy tales back in on fairy stories and talking about how some of them, some of the old fairy stories were trying to preach and failing, and he didn't like that. Um, stories which were just preachy. But again, that's the point. Stories that are just preachy, whose point is only to try to teach a particular thing, to teach a particular message. Because what that does is it cheapens the story itself. That's the point of the story. If the story is just a vehicle for the particular message, such that once you convey the message, you can then chuck the story out the window, he didn't like that at all because he thought too highly of stories in general. And certainly of his story in particular. Um, He wanted readers to have a very different kind of experience, a very different kind of relationship with the story that he was writing than just you know, decode this, see the moral or political message that I'm trying to convey, and then chuck the rest of it out. Um, As Chaucer would say, take the kernel and let the chaff be still. He was resistant to that kind of uh, interpretation, which was very common in the Middle Ages, um, but he didn't like it. Um, Okay, there's just two things I wanted to point out from the foreword. A couple things from the prologue, that is the long discussion of uh, hobbits and their ways and their backgrounds. Um, (coughs) What do we learn about the nature of hobbits in the prologue? What struck you or interested you? Tony? Uh, They sort of have the qualities that Gandalf that Bilbo had are very sneaky and disappear quickly and everyone seems to think, think it's magical but it's just their natural skill. Yes. Yeah, the couple things interesting there, right? The uh the burglary that the, the the things that gave Bilbo his qualifications as a burglar seem to be general uh, of hobbits and they're not magical though they seem like it. Um good. Good. What else? The, the, um, not necessarily in a bad way, but tend to be caught up in their own business rather than caring about the outside world a lot. And I was thinking of the bit of the Ordering of the Shire and where they were talking about, like, the king who was like, you, you have to declare allegiance to me, but you can do your own thing. And they're, like, mostly doing their own thing and a little bit of the allegiance. Yeah. Supposedly they sent Bowman, but there's no record of that ever showing up. Yeah. Ever showing up. Just so that seems mostly because, it seems mostly because the humans, uh, didn't pay any attention to the Hobbit Bowman. I, I, I bet the Hobbit Bowman actually came uh, to the last battle, but you know, nobody even really noticed them. Um, 
kind of sad, isn't it? <laughs> but, but anyway, the, the, yes, they are sheltered. This is one of the primary facts that we learn about, about life in the Shire, um, not just at the time of the story, but historically. Um, this is a sheltered region. And there are clearly positives and negatives associated with that. Because of the sheltering of the Shire, um, that's the origin of the life of comfort and safety and security that Bilbo so valued during The Hobbit, all of those thoughts about his, his fireplace and his tea kettle uh, throughout The Hobbit. This is sort of, it's the result of, of them, being, them being sheltered, and that's, that's a good thing. They came to believe that peace and safety were the right of all sensible folk. Well, that's a good perspective to have. Um, But there is, and I agree with you, Jordan, there is certainly an emphasis that there are some negatives to their sheltered existence, that they do become insular. They do become isolated. Anything outside their little shire, they cease to think about it. And it doesn't really matter much to them. What do maps look like in the Shire? We learn this in, I think it's chapter one, maybe the beginning of chapter two. Duncan? Isn't it just the, the Shire and then white space? And then white space around the edges. Yes, exactly. That's the Hobbit worldview, right? Some of them might have gotten, remember the, 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 the discussions of, um, of Towald Hornblower, the, the, the first grower of pipeweed in, Mary, in the section of Mary's treatise that we get, right? He sometimes went as far as Bree, which is like a few miles outside the Shire. I mean, it's very, very close to the edge of the Shire, but he certainly never went further than that, right? I mean, that, that, that's, that's a big trip all the way out to Bree. And again, it just shows you how insular, how isolated the Shire is. And there are clearly, at times, some bad consequences to that, and we'll see that. Um, I think the... Certainly in the first phase of this book, this question of sort of the internal Shire perspective and, the, and, and, and its relationship to the outer world um, is, a, is a pretty important theme that we'll come back to. Um, one other thing that I would emphasize, which is related to uh, their sheltering and sort of the nature of their culture, is the comparative innocence of Hobbit culture. That is, there's, there's not a lot of crime in the Shire, we don't see hobbit crooks. <laughs> Frodo will make the claim, much, much, way, way at the end of the book, he'll say this, but it's an extraordinary claim. He will claim that there has never in the Shire records ever been a recorded instance of first-degree murder in the Shire. No hobbit has ever murdered another hobbit on purpose in the history of the Shire. Um, now, there's actually some controversy about that. Tolkien mentioned in his letters this one instance that, like, a little shady, but, uh, but anyway, it's still the fact that you can even make that claim, even if it's a disputable claim, it says something about the culture. Um, another thing which, is, which says something about their culture is their relationship to machines. What's their relationship with machines? They have none, right? What are the most complicated machines they, that they have? They're not comfortable with anything more sophisticated than what? Chantal, do you remember? Mill? Yeah, a, a, a water mill? Yeah. Forge bellows. A forge bellows, right? Like the thing that blow air in there. That's pretty complicated, right? Hand loom. <laughs> and a hand loom, right. Yeah, that's as mechanized as hobbits get. At least they're, they're not comfortable with anything more mechanized than that. 
that's also clearly a good thing. Clearly a good thing. Um, and we, this theme will come back at the end of the return of the king. And when it does, I want to be thinking about, you know, this. sometimes there are a lot of people who like to talk about uh, Tolkien's relationship to industrialization and to the environment in general um, in some pretty broad ways. I mean, there are a lot of people who really kind of emphasize that as one of the major themes of, of The Lord of the Rings. I'm not 100% sure that I'd put it myself as among one of the major themes. But I think that people sometimes can be a little bit sloppy in the conclusions that they draw about Tolkien's environmentalism and, and sort of exactly where he's coming from with all this stuff. So just keep an eye on that as we move, as we move forward. Clearly, though, again, there's a sense of innocence about their culture uh, and the fact that they, they, they're, they're not a highly mechanized society, and that's, he, he seems plainly to be endorsing that as a good thing. Personally, I found it very endearing that they have a word for things that um, that they can't bear to part with, but they don't actually have use for. Yes. Um, so they're all kind of like little pack rats. Yes, yes. They, though some of them circulate, right? <laughs> they keep giving from one birthday present to another. Um, and the, the Matham House is like their local name for That's what they call a museum, right? That's like the, the museum is the... Nickel Delving Matham House, uh, where you send your Mathams. Yeah, yeah, Brent? Um, I found it really interesting the relationship with the sea and how they're like, you don't want to go there, you don't want to see that when there's always an emphasis on crossing over that sea. Yes, good. Whatever the humans in the first age had, which led them to migrate westward and seek the light that they heard is in the west, the hobbits don't have it. Right, they they have this complete lack of longing for the sea, this uh, near this antipathy, in fact, even for the sea. Um, and I think that it's another really interesting way of looking at the insularity of the Shire. They are content in their little realm. They don't want anything beyond it. The hobbits, most of them, seem to be genuinely untroubled by any desire for anything out west. Um, and I think that's a really important point. Because I think that that's a problem with Hobbit society. I think that's not a good thing. Um, when we meet Frodo, we see that Frodo does have longings, right? He does want to go out and see the big world, and he wants to see. He doesn't long for the sea yet, um, yet. <laughs> um, but I, I do think you know when we when at the end we can sort of step back and look at the overall patterns. Um, I keep talking about the end because, of course, uh, the emphasis on the Shire and Shire politics and, and, and sort of the themes of Hobbit life in the Shire um, are most important in The Lord of the Rings at the very beginning and the very end of the story. So um, I'm trying to emphasize a lot of these things now so when seven weeks from now we come back to the end of the story, uh, we can pick them up again and, and sort of see how things have changed. Kelly? Um, could the fact that the Hobbits um, are disinterested in the sea and moving westward have to do with... Um Tolkien's views on like the decline of societies because it says historically they did move, um, they did move west. Good. Yeah, you're right. The earliest history of the hobbits that we have is a, is a, a continual westward movement. Even the move from Bree across the Brandywine into the Shire to to to, to settle the Shire um, was still a westward movement. Um, so yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, we seem to have a society which was following the general westward pattern, but it stopped. And is now in a kind of, I mean, I don't want to say stasis or even worse, stagnation or anything like that. There's clearly, he's not that negative about Hobbit society, but it's clearly, at least potentially, uh, an issue. And 
and a question of decline. One last note about the innocence, though, that I said. This does not mean that the Shire is like a little, you know, a little three-foot-high Garden of Eden, right? They are not, hobbits are clearly not sinless. In fact, we see them uh, indulging in smallish kinds of misdoings quite a bit, right? Like the people who uh, line up at the door for a birthday present, sneak out the back and come around for a second birthday present, right? Uh, the folks who show up at Bag End hearing everything is being given away free and, 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 and try to make off with all of Bilbo's stuff. The guy that Frodo has to physically kick out of the, the basement of Bag End because he's mining for gold in one of the walls, right? I mean, this... Clearly, there are issues here, even in, in, in Bilbo's gifts, in his pointed gifts to people, right? He is pointing out some of the moral shortcomings of his, of his friends and relations, right? So, clearly, I, I don't want to give the impression that Tolkien has depicted the Shire as this completely paradisical, uh, you know, place of moral perfection, but, but it's clearly very, very good morally. Yeah. Could that be one of the key problems of its insularness? Because you only have, I mean, they're all a little greedy and a lot indulgent sometimes. Yes, yes. But you can only have so much affluence in one place, and without expanding, there's not necessarily going to be enough to go around, and so there's a little bit of insquabbling. Yeah, we don't see a whole lot of want, that is, of, of you know, we don't see, we see very rich hobbits. We don't see a lot of very poor hobbits, of people starving down the road. Yeah, there are no beggar hobbits. Right. We do get upper and lower class hobbits very clearly. And we can see in the gaffer's comment about Bilbo, when, um, when, when the gaffer is talking to Sandyman, the miller, uh, and they're talking about Bilbo, um, he points out that there are, there are some folks uh, as wouldn't give a pint of beer to a friend if he lived in a hole made with golden walls. And he points to Bilbo's generosity and says, if that's being queer, then we could do with a bit more queerness around these parts. And so in that, we can see a little bit of a glimpse that there are inequities in Hobbit society. There are some people who have more and some people who have less. Um, and the people who have less are aware of that. Um, but we don't see a lot of, you know, I am enriching myself at the expense of all the people around me sort of knowingly and, con- and, 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 uh, and consciously. One of the things, try to make this one of the last references I make to the end of the story, uh, one reference at the end of the story is going to be revealing about this, that we will find one hobbit who buys up a lot of property. Um, and the response to that is puzzlement by the other hobbits. It's a, you know, they can't understand why would he want to own so much land. Um, he already owned a site more than was good for him, uh, one, one hobbit will say of him. Um, that is, to us, in our society, it might seem perfectly logical, obviously. You want to be as rich as possible. You want to own as much as possible. Um, that idea seems to be alien to hobbit society. Um, obviously not unknown. We, it will happen. But... Um, but clearly against their normal culture. So again, we don't see that kind of extreme, um, I'm going to impoverish people and make myself astoundingly rich. Um, to be rich is by definition to be comfortable in Hobbit society, right? Bilbo in his very, very comfortable Hobbit hole, he's, he's 
very wealthy. Um, but, yeah, but the, the dynamics of that are a little bit different. Jordan, did you find your thing? Yeah, um, it was actually, I realized why I couldn't find it. It was in, it's in The Hobbit. Ah, I see, okay. It's Thorne's comment as he lay dying. Um, it's, more, the world might be a better place if more people valued good food and sheer over hoarded wealth. And you, well, if that was the case, the world would be a better place. But it isn't, so, you better, so the Hobbits are a little careless in okay. everyone does. Good, good. One of the problems is just uh, you can't, you can't just go on ignoring the outer world and pretending it doesn't exist, pretending that all the world is as nice and friendly as the Shire is. Um, yeah, good. But I think that's an important thing to remember when we're looking at the insularity of the Shire. Um, that commendation that Thorin gives to Bilbo and his Baggins-like Shire uh, values clearly is still in force. You know, we have not now turned around to say, ah, that's act- now we see that that was bad. It's clearly, it's, it's a very good thing. It's a very good thing. Um, but the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring does encourage us to start thinking in some different kinds of ways. Um, I think one of the ways that it encourages us to think differently is in terms not with, with Bilbo and the Hobbit. Um, we saw from the beginning the emphasis was always on his Took side versus his Baggins side. Right, his, his predictable, dependable, stay-at-home-and-eat-second-breakfast-on-the-lawn impulses and his strange, adventurous side that he inherited from the Tooks. Those don't seem to be the terms uh, that get insisted on here um, at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring. Look at the changes in Bilbo. The beginning of the... The beginning of the story, of course, has some very deliberate parallels with the beginning of The Hobbit, right? As is broadcasted in the title of the chapter, the long-expected party in contrast to the unexpected party in chapter one of, 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 of The Hobbit, and that plainly points to some of the major changes here. The unexpected party was, of course, the world of adventure breaking in on him. Now, this party is by Bilbo long-expected, in fact in his mind, almost delayed. He's been impatient for this party finally to come around and for, the, and for him to get back into the world of adventure. When he leaves, what does he pick up? When he's setting out the door. Huh? Gets his walking stick and... His, he gets a cloak and hood out of mothballs. They've been packed away as if they're very precious. What are they? Yeah, it's hard even to tell their color because they're so old and travel-stained, but their color might have been dark green. It's Dwalin's spare hood that Bilbo was given at the very beginning of The Hobbit, the one that, he, that didn't fit him and he looked dorky in, we're told. Um, that's what prompts the narrator to say, what old Bungo would have thought, I don't like to think, right? Him dressed in that hood. So he gets out his original old dwarf hood to put on. Um... And, of course, he has his sword, too, in addition to his walking stick. And here he sets off. How does he talk about it? I mean, obviously, we have huge changes here. But what are some of the patterns you see in the changes in Bilbo's attitude? How does he talk about leaving? Last time, he was living in his own very insulated little Baggins world. And this adventurous world 
broke in on him unexpectedly, and before he knew it, the next morning he was sprinting down the road with no pocket handkerchiefs, right? It's, but it's very different now. Yeah, Brittany, how is it different? He feels that, like, the time back in the shower has been great, and there's nothing wrong with it, but starting to feel a little bit boring. Yes. He is full of longing which he is finally going to indulge, longing to return to that world. Now remember, at the end of The Hobbit, he, when he was in the adventurous world, he was longing to return. He was done with the... I mean, from the time they got to the, to the, to the long lake, he is already... By the time when they were in prison with the elves, he was already emotionally done with the... I mean, he, he wanted to go home. He was getting depressed, and he was, he was, he was tired of it. But he, he continued and he persevered. But then at the end, he just, he just wants to be home in the worst way. And we see the way, and we talked last time about how we can see in Bilbo's return some of the principles of recovery that Tolkien describes and on fairy stories, right? As he comes back and, and has a new perspective on his Baggins life and enjoys it even more. And the sound of his kettle singing on the hearth is more musical to him than it ever was before. But now we see... How long has it been since The Hobbit? It's been about 60 years. It's been about 60 years. He was 50-ish uh, when he went on his adventure in The Hobbit, and he's now 11-1. So it's, it's been about 60 years since he came home. Um, so it's been a long time. And now he's ready to leave it behind. Um, he calls it a holiday. And he says, I want to go on holiday. I want to go on a vacation. And you think of the implications of that. He's like, I want to see mountains again. I want to see mountains again before I die. Um, and remember, this is the guy who, like, when they first came in sight of the Misty Mountains, was like, is that the Lonely Mountain? And they're like, dude, you don't know mountains. <laughs> no, that's not the Lonely Mountain. That's only the very, very beginning. And now he's pining for mountains, right? Very different from the old Bilbo. If you think about everything that's happened to him in mountains, wonder why he ever wants to see one again. What? Kidnapped by goblins, <laughs> shot at weeds flying out by dragons. Yeah, no, exactly. You would think um, that he would not have very pleasant associations. But no, he's, he's again, it's, it's clearly how his attitude has changed. Remember, you know, him cringing on his, uh, on his hearth rug and yelling, struck by lightning, struck by lightning. Remember, I mean, this is a very different attitude um, that he now brings to it. Um, he even associates it with rest. He wants, a, he wants a break. On the one hand, we have all these visitors who keep coming by, and, and, and on the other hand, adventures through mountains. Oh, that would be so peaceful, right? Uh, Dublin town right here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's uh, yeah, well, certainly a very different kind of perspective. But again, so we see him embracing that outer world. Um, certainly in ways that he didn't before. How about the differences in the attitude towards him? Just as striking, of course. Marta? Yes. Yeah. His reputation is about as opposite as it could be uh, from his previous reputation. Um, he's known for unpredictability, but also for what? The poetry. Yeah, his, his, his fans, I love the moment in the speech when, they're, when they all 
they all thought that some, some, a song or some poetry was imminent and they were getting bored, right? Um, yeah, because they, they know Bilbo and he's going to go off and start telling some tales, probably in verse, about his ridiculous adventures. Um, there will be a similar moment uh, when later on in the Council of Elrond, Elrond will call upon Bilbo to tell his story that is the story of the Hobbit. Uh, Elrond makes a little joke at Bilbo's expense and says, and if you have not yet cast your story into verse, you may tell it in plain words. Uh, that is, Elrond is sort of assuming that uh, Bilbo will in fact have made up an epic poem of his, uh, of, of his story by then. He's clearly associated uh, with poetry already. Um, what else? What else is he known for? Well, um, this is a little later, but I love how the bit in um, the second chapter when they were saying how he becomes a little bit legend of Mad Baggins, who disappears yes. with a bang and a flash, and if you gold and jewel. Yes, he, he becomes a genuine legend. Yeah, Mad Baggins, who disappears and reappears with bags of gold. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, he's already becoming a local legend, right? Soon he will become an actual legend. Yeah. Brittany? The rumor of his wealth. Yes. Uh, yes, he has his, his wealth. And what else about him? His prolonged vigor, his youthfulness. He's now 11-1, but he still looks 50. Um, so that, that people are grumbling that it seems like too much of a good thing that somebody should have reputedly inexhaustible wealth as well as apparently... on the adjective. Uh, inexhaustible wealth and... Yeah, apparently perpetual youth. As well as reputedly inexhaustible wealth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, vigor and wealth. Um, he is full of life. Right? So full of life that he never seems to run out in the normal way. Just as his money never seems to run out. Um, and there's you know, leading to all this speculation about, you know, the gaffer is like, well, I remember the day he came back and he didn't have, you know, infinite amounts of me. He, he had some bags and some chests and I don't doubt they were full of gold, which in fact they were, uh, as we know. Um, but there wasn't enough to fill tunnels, says, says the gaffer. But everyone's like, oh, he was been adding to it since then, right? He, he, the, the, the wealth, in fact, you'll notice... The interesting thing about Bag End itself, remember in The Hobbit, throughout, Bag End was the icon of comfortable respectability of the Hobbit lifestyle that he had left behind and was going to return to. Now, Bag End, well, it's not a mountain, it's just a hill with golden treasure inside. It has become itself this adventurous thing. Uh, like a little miniature, a little hobbit-sized lonely mountain um, in the Shire. Um, it's, again, it's, it's, it's uh, to, the, to the extent that we have, as I mentioned, a burglar who sneaks in and is trying to, is trying to excavate gold out of it. Um, as I mentioned... The emphasis here is not on his Took side versus his Baggins side anymore. What we see happening at the end of The Hobbit, in part, is the comfortable integration of those two things. He's not divided between the two of them anymore. Um, but he really sort of embraces both of them, and the two of them enrich each other. And that's the experience that he has at the very end of The Hobbit. Um, 
here, at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, the, the divide that we get is not between Took and Baggins, but between big and small. That is, you know, when Bilbo's talking about Frodo, for instance, he says that, you know, he wants to go out and see the wild country and the mountains. But Frodo, he's still content with fields and little rivers, right? The little small-scale geography of the Shire is still enough for Frodo. He's not, he's not ready to graduate to the big stuff outside yet. The Shire is a little land. It's always a little land, and outside is big stuff. And we can see this in their talk very frequently. The gaffer, for instance, warning everybody who will listen to him, don't meddle with the affairs of your betters or you'll get caught up in trouble that's too big for you. And this, of course, is exactly the kind of thing that that Frodo is aware of. Right? He's going to go out into the big world. And what happens to him in chapter 2 in his talk with Gandalf, is not like what happens with Bilbo, where the world of the Tookish world of adventure breaks into his Baggins world at Bag End. Rather, we have the big world and the concerns of the big world coming into the little world, and Frodo having to leave the little world in order to save it. Right? Um, he doesn't realize, of course, he didn't know, right? How his little ring, Bilbo's ring, is so big and so important. And that now him and his whole land is caught up in these big things. Uh, one thing I'd also point out, the big world has gotten bigger since the, since the Hobbit. Did you catch the reference to the trolls? Look at page 43. near the top of the page. Orcs were multiplying again in the mountains. Trolls were abroad, no longer dull-witted, but cunning and armed with dreadful weapons. That is, when you meet trolls, don't expect them to be like Bill Huggins and the other two guys from The Hobbit. The dull-witted trolls that Gandalf deceived and were arguing over how to cook dwarves. Nowadays, trolls aren't like that anymore. Now they're cunning and armed with dreadful weapons. And when we meet trolls they will be much more intimidating. We won't meet trolls for a while, but when we do, they will be much more intimidating than the, the three uh, comical trolls that Bilbo meets with. And again, it's just part of, you know, we are being informed here. The world has changed. One thing I would just mention here in passing. Notice how clever Tolkien is in integrating the changes that he makes to the story into the fabric of the story itself. He is so aware as a medievalist of manuscript histories and, 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 and the connections between texts and things that he thinks that way very naturally in himself. Um, so you have The Hobbit, which he writes back in the 30s, um, and it's a children's story and it's a small story, and although it kind of partakes in this and lives in the same world as some of the other stories he was writing already, like The Fall of Gondolin and stuff, you know, the references to Gondolin and The Hobbit, um, it, it's all there, but it's it's it feels very different, and it's not really integrated in any way. And now that he's been working on the sequel, and now that he's developed this story, and now that the, that, that cute little story called The Hobbit has been absorbed into this bigger thing, he doesn't just try to skim over that. He doesn't just try to rewrite it and then pretend that the earlier versions didn't happen. Instead, he addresses the changes from the beginning, with, like with this troll reference. 
we as readers might, you know, come across trolls and say, oh, I remember trolls from The Hobbit and might experience some disjunction. Gosh, these don't sound like, you know, Bert and Tom and Bill, the trolls that we met in The Hobbit. And he recognizes this and integrates that and says, yes, the world has changed now. Of course, his story is what changed. Um, As he's writing this long work, this long sequel to The Hobbit, the story changed and grew and he discovered new things, as he says. But that process of change and discovery, he makes part of the story itself. And he even, as you saw in the prologue, will go back and give a careful description of the manuscript history of these things, when they were copied and by whom and which ones are more reliable and things like that, so that all of the, all of the changes and, uh, and discrepancies and things which remain in his own stories can become themselves part of the story. You see? Um, it's, a, it's just a remarkable thing that he's done there. Um, Frodo says that his adventure is different from Bilbo's adventure. And he keeps explicitly comparing it back to the Hobbit. This is no there and back again journey. This is no treasure hunt. And he even offers the sort of the clear, sort of the ironic contrast. Bilbo went to find a treasure there and back again. I go to lose a treasure and never to return so far as I can tell. But at the same moment, right after he says that, Frodo looks out the window and is overcome with the excitement of the thought of following Bilbo. And Tolkien says that in that moment, he could almost have run out and gone running down the path without his pocket handkerchief, just like Bilbo did. Though again, for totally opposite reasons, out of desire for the adventure, rather than how unexpectedly Bilbo was swept away in it. So we can see even Frodo is conflicted in that. But again, the terms of the conflict are different. And I want to be looking at that uh, as we move forward. Lots of stuff for Wednesday, uh, including our first meeting with the Black Riders. Um, And by the time we all come together again uh, here on Friday, we'll have met uh, Tom Bombadil, Strider, and lots of other things. So... uh, We shall have much more to talk about as we move forward. That's all for today. In the next class, we will cover chapters 3 through 6, which will bring us into the old forest and up against Tom Bombadil. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.